Today on Ag News Daily. We asked restaurants, what's the one thing you cannot get farm-to-table fresh that you would love to have, no matter the cost? Kept coming back mushrooms. We'd never seen a mushroom outside of a pizza, much less know how to grow them. Well, happy March 1st, Ag News Daily listeners. We're here on a Friday edition of the Ag News Daily podcast. We are sitting here at the last day of the Commodity Classic trade show. I don't know why I thought it still went into Saturday, Delaney. I thought it did too, actually. Yeah, we're told we get to clean our stuff up this afternoon after the final hour ticks away, which is going to be exciting and sad all at the same time. It's been great to see a lot of you listeners down here. Thank you for stopping to say hi to both of us. But uh, it's going to be over too fast, I feel like, Delaney. You're having a bittersweet moment here? I am. I didn't expect to have one of those until I started talking about it. I think I'm ready to be get done and go home, <laughs> so I'm not having the same sentiment. Well, you'll go home to some normal Iowa winter weather. It looks like it's still going to be a little bit chilly there in the central part of the state. Iowa is pretty much snow-free as far as that goes. That's not the same case for some of our friends a little bit further north. Of course, we still feel and have thoughts and prayers together for those in the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles. They are experiencing extremely dry weather in the southern plains. Makes those wildfires spread. Red flag warnings are still in effect for much of that area as well as New Mexico. Fire watches have been issued. The fire weather watch will be in effect until Sunday as winds could go up to 30 miles per hour. Relative humidity in all of these areas are going to be 10% or below. Fires will spread very quickly outdoor if something does catch. So burning has been discouraged. When we look at the future, we will see humidity start to climb into the weekend, but any fires will be capable of spreading rapidly, unfortunately. So uh, we'll continue to keep them in our thoughts and prayers, and I'll probably look for an update on those active fires here as one of my headlines today. We've also seen some wildfires in Nebraska, central Nebraska as well. 71,000 acres of wildfires have been uh, found here in central Nebraska as Nebraska officials say a mower ignited a wildfire that burned roughly 110 square miles of Nebraska's grasslands. So obviously not the same wildfires that are going on down in in Texas, but just due to some of those dry conditions we've been reporting on here and windy conditions, things certainly got a little out of hand there for that farmer in central Nebraska. Yeah, it does look like the devastating Smokehouse Creek fire in Hutchinson County, Texas, is officially estimated at 1,075,000 acres. So as of yesterday, it was still only 3% contained. So we haven't received an update yet this morning. Uh, It is, again, like you said yesterday, the second largest fire. But... uh, Oh, no, we did get updated here, Delaney. This is now the largest fire in Texas mm. history. So, unfortunately, it did consume more acres yesterday. Fire, gr- fire crews are working hard to combat the enormous fire in uh, the Smokehouse Creek region. How- however, there are several buildings, farmsteads that have been totaled. There is also an extreme amount of livestock that has been affected as well. So, unfortunately... Um, that does not look like it is going to be contained anytime soon. The good news is some of these other fires are looking at 60 and 65%. The Great Vine Creek is 60% contained. The Magenta Fire is 65% contained. And the Reamer Fire is 90% contained. So we'll continue to keep an eye on the rest of those spreading as well. 
Well, taking things over to Washington, D.C., Tanner, we saw a government shutdown once again avoided here. But, of course, it's just a short-term funding that has been passed on Thursday, averting that government shutdown. Both the House and Senate speedily passed a short-term agreement that would kick the can down the road here for, I think, another five months. This is the fourth short-term funding bill that has been passed here as lawmakers are unable to find uh, middle ground here on the rest, rest of fiscal year 2024. And so they did avoid that government shutdown very narrowly. In addition to the government funding and government shutdown, that was averted there, Tanner. We're also still seeing folks, of course, on Capitol Hill working toward a new farm bill. And this week we saw folks from the Republican side of the aisle in the Senate called for more money for farm subsidies on Wednesday. They said pointing to forecasts of a second year in a row of falling farm income, Republican senators called for more money for farm subsidies. They said we've got to get it right for production agriculture. And that was Senator John Thune from North Dakota who mentioned that. However, USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack warned against dipping into SNAP or climate mitigation funding to pay for these priorities, including raising reference prices, which we know has been a huge point of discussion here as they are getting through the next farm bill. Doesn't sound like overall they had positive discussions, but Republicans nonetheless are pushing forward here and saying, hey, look at the year we have ahead of us here. And as we know, USDA has really forecasted a lower uh, net farm income by quite a substantial amount. And the Republican senator groups there want to do something about it, Tanner. That's good that we are continuing to see at least some motivation, encouraging some moving forward. We have seen a lot of carbon updates down here at the Commodity Classic. One of those updates is coming from the Bayer Carbon Program. They have highlighted six expanded opportunities for their farmers to enroll in the program and earn incentives for their regenerative practices. The company is structuring its program around the practices that sequester the most carbon and promote soil health while paying per acre incentives not based upon the amount of carbon sequestered. So the six enhancements, Delaney, that come for 2024, this will be available in 28 different states. It will have expanded practices from no-till and strip-till to cover crop that will re provide rewards on flat dollar per acre amounts. In addition, corn and soybeans, wheat, and newly eligible crops of barley, sorghum, oats, rye, millet, dry beans, lentils, chickpeas, and regular peas will be included. Farther back will be the ability for look-back periods to August 1st of 2019. The renewal potential has been adjusted, so the performance period is five years and can be renewed up to a additional three to five year period. A renewal bonus is also available for a potential of an extra $6 per acre. So Delaney, they've got the mission to improve and expand their program to create these opportunities for even more of America's farmers. The Vice President of Ecosystems Services at Bayer Crop Sciences says that these recent enhancements will provide farmers more options, resources, and benefits, so that way they can meet their farmers where they are at on their regenerative ag journey. So an expanded carbon program there is one of many that have been unveiled here at Commodity Classic.
Yeah, we've talked to a few carbon folks this week, and we'll be bringing some good conversations here over the next few weeks about that. I talked with Mitchell Hora, and he said that uh, Secretary of Ag Vilsack will be here today mm-hmm. and is going to make some announcements. So I'm sure we will have that news to share with our listeners on Monday. Yeah, well, we should hear theoretically today what the new GREET model looks like for sustainable aviation fuel. And I know I was talking to Mitchell about this, too. I said, Mitchell, you should get to go up on stage and get to ask a question to Vilsack, because I think if there's anyone I'd pick to volunteer, it would definitely be him. You know, though, it wouldn't just be able to be one question if it oh, was I Mitchell. Oh, I know. That's true. That's true. They would never allow for that, because uh, as he shared with me, he definitely uh, rake him over the coals a little bit. So, <laughs> uh, I've just got a quick headline to throw in here before getting to Russia and Ukrainian news is the last of mine. A Wisconsin town hall meeting was debating this sustainability for a proposed digester. For more than three hours, residents debated on what an aerobic co-digester could be installed on a local dairy farm. So for more than three hours on Wednesday, those in the town of Lind in Wapaka. Ooh. Did you pronounce that correctly? Okay. I might have put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) Debated whether or not the proposed anaerobic co-digester on a local dairy farm would actually be beneficial to their area. People packed an auditorium at the high school for the community meeting. And that has been delayed since December. Another 90 joined remotely. So we'll see here if this manure anaerobic digester does get approved. The debate did not have the ability to take it to a vote. It was more of a local public hearing. So getting into Russia, Ukraine news. The funeral for the opposition figure, Alexei Novaini, did take place. He was laid to rest in Moscow early this morning, exactly two weeks after his death. Thousands of people gathered to pay their respects. The Kremlin said that it had nothing to say to Novaini's family and also warned against unauthorized memorials for him. He died after feeling unwell after a walk, according to the Kremlin. His widow released a message expressing her love. I don't know how to live without you. I will try to make you and your memory continue. So Novaini made global headlines when he was poised with, uh, poisoned with a nerve agent in 2020 and has encouraged Russians not to give up. So we'll see if there will be any spill out or further unrest following his burial. Well, Tanner, I have just a few headlines here I don't want to miss before we get into the markets. Mexico is working really diligently here, it sounds, to buy a record $28.4 billion worth of U.S. food and agricultural exports this year. That is still, of course, coming after Mexico is headed to a dispute settlement panel with the United States about GM corn. That'll happen later this year. But nonetheless, Mexico will buy that record $28.5 billion worth of U.S. food and agricultural exports this year is what they've pledged. That's only $300 million less than what China is currently pledged to purchase this year. And that certainly has been positive here for the markets. Tanner, one thing that may not be so positive is where spring crop insurance prices are going to end up. We don't have official numbers yet, but we have pretty good estimates about where those prices will be. Yeah, I had an interview with a representative from Farmers Mutual Hale that was expressing some of the same sentiment. Well, it looks like right now we're still waiting for final calculations to come in, but as far as we can tell, spring crop insurance prices are projected to be at about 4.66 for corn and 11.55 for soybeans. 
that corn price is 27% lower than last year, Tanner, and soybeans is 16% lower than last year. Spring wheat futures also should come in at a $6.85 level for spring crop insurance, 30% lower than last year. So we definitely don't have as much of a floor as we have had in years prior. That was one of the major things that was shared in that conversation is the younger farmers that are more highly leveraged are certainly in a more precarious position because you can't insure a break-even anymore. That's right. And it'll, it'll be a little bit tougher of a year. We already knew this was going to be a challenging year ahead, but certainly not having that spring crop insurance higher premium to rely back on could be impactful for a lot of growers as well. But as we take a look here at the overnight, soybeans were higher due to some trade and weather concerns in parts of South America. Light rain is expected in parts of Argentina through tomorrow, but not going to be maybe enough moisture that they need at this point in time. We also saw weekly export sales improved week to week, which helped export uh, sales and demand here, which uh, put a little bit of a floor underneath the grain markets here today. Export sales of corn in the week ending February 22nd were reported at 1.08 million metric tons, up 32% from the week prior, but down from the five, excuse me, but down 5% from the four-week average. Mexico was a big buyer here, coming in with 423,700 tons, followed by Japan, Colombia, South Korea, and Venezuela. Taking a look at the markets here this morning, Tanner, March corn has opened five and three quarters cents lower on the board at 4.10. March soybeans up two and three quarters cents at 11.31. Taking a look at the wheat contracts here on the board, Chicago March wheat down 14 and a half cents at 5.63. March hard red winter wheat down 16 and three quarters cents at 5.86. And March spring wheat down eight and a half cents at 6.56. Taking a look at livestock here at the open, April live cattle are up a buck seventy-two and a half at a dollar eighty-seven oh five. March feeder cattle up two seventy-two and a half on the board at two fifty-one seventy-two. And April lean hogs down eighty-five cents this morning at eighty-five seventy-seven and a half. Dinner today's Friday interview is a fun one. We're catching up with a farm comedian of all things. We have a special Friday interview today. I'm so honored to bring on this farm comedian, fellow farmer, and a fellow professional speaker, Jerry Carroll, down here at the Commodity Classic. Jerry, I'll let you take it away and give our listeners a little bit more of an introduction to you. Well, as a matter of fact, Delaney, I started uh, just celebrating 30 years as a comedian slash um, speaker. Um, yeah, I was. I actually, NSP, uh, uh, well, CPS. Uh, whatever it was with the NSA. You remember, are you a part of the NSA, National Speaker Association? So, yeah, there was a while I was drinking that Kool-Aid and was a part of the Certified Speaking Professional, CSP. That's it. I um, Yeah, I started doing stand-up when I was 35. Uh, I'd never set foot on stage to that point and kind of on a whim uh, during one of my many divorces. I decided I would go hang out at the comedy club, and I was fortunate enough to uh, get my start at Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh, which is was voted number one comedy club in America for 20 straight years by the comedians. The original brick wall. Um, but more so than anything, I, I, as a kid growing up, I saw such greats as Jerry Clower. Uh, you're probably too young to know who Jerry Clower is. Was a uh, seed and feed salesman, a fertilizer salesman, who became one of the, back in the 60s, one of the most wonderful Southern comedians of all time. 
And I would see these guys, and I thought, man, I'd love to do that one day. So I was busy. We I farmed up to that point uh, all my life. We, we were 300 south fair to finish. We farmed about 1,500 acres of row crops, uh, corn, double crop soybeans behind wheat, small grain, kind of similar like you do, oats, wheat, barley. Um, but the main thing that we made money on, we were uh, tobacco farmers. Because being from North Carolina originally, born and raised uh, just south of Raleigh, North Carolina, in tobacco country, we had 150 acres, which is a pretty big tobacco farm. Um, and like I mentioned here today, grew up uh, dirt poor, first generation tobacco farmer. My dad was a sharecropper. Uh, his family grew up really tough. Although originally our family had a land grant from Lord Gramble in 1768. Uh, but being good Scott Irish, we proceeded to gamble, drink, and just pretty much blow it by 1805. Um, but yeah, we uh, we were tobacco farmers, sharecroppers. Um, my dad, pretty accomplished, bought both farms by the time he was 35 years old. Um, so hard work. The man never slept more than four hours a day in his life. Um, passed away at the ripe old age of 60. So, but yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years uh, this past November. I vote for some of the biggest names in comedy. But my favorite thing now, I'm somewhat retired, I live at Sunset Beach, North Carolina, is um, I get to pick and choose. So I was so blessed to be a part of this whole pioneer thing that you and I have done. Uh, they were so smart in combining the two of us because um, I've never met a stranger and I will ramble on forever. And you are so detail-oriented. And Delaney will sit there and go, well, we need to ask this question. Just don't ramble. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, they hired me to be your handler, I think, <laughs> at Commodity Classic. Yeah, the Wrangler. Yeah. <laughs> the Wrangler. The Wrangler and the handler well, for Jerry. <laughs> our, pod, our podcast listeners know that. I wrangle my co-host all the time. Yeah. So they that does not, I'm sure, come as a surprise to anyone. But you mentioned uh, you've been a farmer for quite some time. You're somewhat semi-retired as a retirement and, and speaker. But I want to learn a little bit more about the transition that you had at your farm, maybe at the tail end of your career, right. you know, you mentioned for a long time you had 300 head farrow to finish. Right. And a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have been in the livestock business. That's uh, that's tough work. And, and you mentioned 50 head, 50 head of cattle, too. And you mentioned in the 90s you got out of the hog business, right. transitioned those buildings into some storage. And then in 2018, 2019, you made this wild hair decision to start growing mushrooms. Yeah. How did you come to that conclusion that that's what you wanted to do? Well, actually, we, I told you we're those people. We're those people you read about in the Farm Journal, progressive farmer. We're those people that given an idea. My brother worked for BSF for 28 years, a very talented individual. My sister is uh, incredibly smart, and my mother and dad had passed, and we had converted those hog buildings back about 2000 into storage buildings because hogs were 12 cents. My dad did not, absolutely did not want to be a contract farmer he never wanted he said i never want to smell like a hog pen for anybody but me um so we rented those bills storage building when my sister after 30 years working at a company i had decided she wanted to open a wedding venue and so she started carelock farms in 2015 opened it in 2016 six thousand square foot morton building that she designed made the cover of morton buildings 2018 or 2019 calendar carelock farms but because she did that and got an exemption for agritourism, they found out we were renting the buildings for storage. And so we always believed, my dad's thing was, I'll ask for forgiveness later, I'm gonna do it. It's my land, I'll do what I want to with it. So at that point, we could no longer use them as storage. And to kind of compliment, my son-in-law who had been in Marine Corps, two tours of duty, wanted to do something on the farm, and it was the least I could do. He wanted to do hydroponics, 
how many hydroponic farms are there? He said, there are eight. Well, that's seven too many. Um, so we went around. We'd never seen a mushroom outside of a pizza, much less know how to grow them. We went around to all the big local farmers markets. We're fortunate we're near Raleigh, uh, almost a million and a half people. We asked restaurants, what's the one thing you cannot get farm to table fresh that you would love to have, no matter the cost? And um, kept coming back mushrooms. We could get fresh mushrooms because mushrooms are so, you only got about a two week window. And by the time they're picked them wherever, Pennsylvania or wherever, shipped to you, they're a week old. They get old, they get slimy, and people don't know the difference. So I don't know what possessed us. We decided we would grow specialty mushrooms. I know what some of you are thinking, not that specialty mushroom. We were growing gray Italians, maitake, shiitakes, and uh, we were growing them in these big metal hog buildings, which is ideal for it. So we came up with a lot of things to make it work in the South, and we became quite successful at it. We were 2,000 pounds a week until COVID hit. 12 high-end restaurants, of which six of them filed bankruptcy and owed us money. Uh, Farmer's Market got shut down for about six or eight months because of COVID. So we went from 2,000 pounds a week to less than 1,000. And, um, but I'm a mushroom-picking son of a gun. I can pick 300 pounds an hour. Uh, but, yeah, we're those people. Well, my sister does a wedding venue. We grow specialty mushrooms on a hog farm. I love that. That's such a fun and very unique story. So the other thing that was fascinating to me, and we were talking about this earlier, is the process to actually grow mushrooms. I'm thinking, how do you do this? Are you doing it on a log? Are you doing it in a greenhouse? It's a very special method that you've come up with. It's the closest thing to having livestock I've ever seen. Um, it's runs a cycle, just like when you were raising hogs fair to finish. Every three to four weeks, you're weaning pigs. You're, it's a continual cycle. Well, the mushroom business the same way. You actually are, you're making, they're in plastic bags, believe it or not. They're not manure like you think. They're um, soybean hulls, hardwood pellet hulls, put in a 10-pound bag. You put four pounds of water, six pounds of mix, half about a quarter pound of a spawn once you sterilize the, the compost because the only thing you want growing in there is what you're selling. Because as we like to say in the industry of growing mushrooms, all mushrooms are edible once. So, yeah, so many things in nature I'd get people all the time, hey, I've got this picture of what's growing in my yard. Should I eat that? Unless you buy here, my farm, absolutely not. There ain't no second place with eating mushrooms. So anyway, so it's a long process. You, you, you spawn them, you put them in the dark in a 72-degree controlled, um, 72 controlled room, 100% humidity, and in three weeks, the bag is solid, turned white with mycelium. You put it in a grow chamber. This is the way we did it, it worked for us. You put it in a grow chamber where it's 65 degrees, 99% humidity, 12 days, 12 hours of sunlight, everything's controlled. The air, because mushrooms are the only thing that uh, it brings in oxygen and exhales carbon dioxide just like human beings. So it's really complicated what's gotta be done. You cut a little slit and mushrooms grow double in size every 24 hours. You cut three slits in the bag and about the fifth to sixth day you're ready to harvest. Now, there is no taking Saturdays and Sundays off. It's seven days a week. Someone has to be there checking the rooms, keeping the floors wet, maintaining, and then harvesting. Every day you need to harvest. So it's like having livestock again. But someone asked me, what do you think your dad would have thought since he passed about growing mushrooms in his hog buildings? He would have thought, wait a minute, you're getting $7 a pound for the cheapest mushrooms and 20 for the most expensive? He would have gone, why didn't I think of that? So it was great. It was interesting. Farm to table. Uh, but there again, those of you who see my comedy show, I do an entire bit about day mushrooms day for sale, dealing with the public. And as a farmer dealing with the public, 
I'm astounded at how little people know about farming or what we do. I think the greatest meme ever is the American farmer works 400 hours a month trying to provide food for people who come firmly, firmly convinced we're trying to kill them. You know, I, I don't get it. Plus, you know, the mushrooms are, are pretty much all organic. Uh, I mean, so. But anyway, that's how we transitioned into that. And my sister, bless her heart, uh, Carolock Farms, wedding venue. I don't know how she puts up with 20 to 30 brides and their mothers. But then we also do events. And so it was kind of nice to bring people out to what little country there was left. And now, unfortunately, we have sold half the farm, the wedding venue and the mushroom farm. And that's why I'm somewhat retired because um, 300 families a week move into town. And had someone wanted it way worse than we did, my dad always said, if somebody wants something way worse than you do, sell it. He always said there was nothing on his farm he would not sell to make a profit except mom, and he would rent her out. <laughs> if you got a dirty mind, you took that wrong. But anyway, here you go. Oh, Jerry. Well, we knew you were going to have some jokes to crack being a comedian. So when you're going and putting on your comedian hat right. and, and talking to different groups, are you primarily talking to fellow ag groups? Are you using the farm and using that in your joke material? Yeah, actually, I've gotten to a point in my career. I'm probably doing 90 percent of what I do is ag business now because they're my people. And the greatest, the absolute greatest compliment I ever get when I finish a show. And to be honest with you, I'd rather do actual farmers, um, you know, customer appreciation banquets or farm bureaus or young farmers and ranchers and uh, FFAs. I love talking to real farmers. I mean, I'll do the big companies and their sales reps, but the greatest compliment I ever get is I walk up there and, and uh, let them know right off the bat. I, you know, I the joke all the time, I still farm far as the IRS is concerned um, and still hold a valid pesticide license and, uh, you know, 12 hours of manure application training. I still where I can do that when I had hogs. But the greatest compliment I get at the end of the night is when I, I'm first show up, last to leave. Everybody wants to talk to you and I hand out cards. Is they all come up and go, man, you just one of us. It's like one of us got up from the table and walked on that stage and made us laugh. You're the real deal. And so many other fellow comics want to do ag business. They come back and they just shake their head and they go, God bless you. How you can get up in front of three or 400 or 500,000 farmers and make them laugh beyond me. They are the toughest audience. No, they're not. They understand if you're trying to shoot them a line of bull, they smell it every day. They can tell when you're not sincere. They can tell when you're not one of us. And I enjoy being one of them. Farmers are the greatest people I've ever known in my life. They truly are. They're the hardest working, most devout, most optimistic people I've ever met in my life. I mean, they're like, to be sure it won't flood this year. To be sure it won't be a drought this year. To be sure we won't have a late frost. We won't have an early frost. To be sure, a tornado won't come or a hurricane. And if someone's crazy enough, I mean, smart enough to lend us money, by God, we'll do it again. How do you, how do you, you, you know, I just don't get it. So, yeah, we're, they're great people. Well, Jerry, that is unfortunately all the time we have. That oh, went fast. You didn't even, yet. I know, we were just getting you started. But appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Delaney. It's been a pleasure working with you. Well, Delaney, I'm sad that I didn't even get invited to participate in that That's interview. True. I'm glad that you were able to collect it, though, and our listeners might have had a chuckle here on this Friday episode edition. We'll be back to talk markets on Monday, which should be a great discussion. But listeners, enjoy your weekend. Uh, but today, Delaney, should we let him go? Let's let him go.